Those five seconds of silence are brought to you by yet another movie from the 1960s that Paul has forced me to watch that features minutes upon minutes upon minutes upon minutes upon minutes upon minutes upon minutes of black screen. You know, this is this is one of those movies that you could have fast forwarded through the black screen. I know. And I, I skipped through just to see, you know, I, I went back and forth. I had to check the timestamps <laughs> just to see how much black screen there actually was. <laughs> That's right. If you didn't guess from the intro, we're talking about Lawrence of Arabia. And also the issues of race and popular culture. So if this is the powder keg of an episode, I don't know what is. Let's go. Lawrence of Arabia and issues of race. They go well together. Actually, they sort of do. So They do. They do. So let's dig in. All righty. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our, um, actually, for maybe the first time ever, Completely Rational Brains. <laughs> I didn't want to undermine us by going with my usual sign in here. Because if I say crazy brains, but then I'm trying to drop some real knowledge, people aren't going to, they're not going to believe me, right? No, that's true. That's true. But also that presumes I have any knowledge to drop, which uh, is a quite the presumptuous presumption. Well, we shall see, right? I mean, we could be we could be very, very cogent and intelligent in this conversation, or we could just go right off the rails and people could write us angry letters if people still wrote letters and such. That's right. Yeah. Or, you know, tweet, Twitter missives. Oh, yeah. If you know. Yeah. Uh, this this conversation does need a qualifier in that um, we are two white men talking about race and popular culture. Um, my hope, and I think this goes for both of us, but I'll let Paul speak his own piece, is that it's coming from a stance of two white men who want to listen and have a heart for listening, even though we're talking right now. Uh, we're hoping to talk with the heart of we've been listening and we'd like to bridge some bridge some gaps um in not because we're particularly uh you know experts but because we hope to be allies so um i know these are tricky i know we're probably not going to get everything right uh, but we hope to be we hope to be filled with compassion and love and uh, uh and a humbleness i guess from my part yeah, no, I and I think you're right. And I think the the key word there is listen. Even as we are talking, I think that 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 one thing that I have perhaps belatedly learned in my life is how important it is to actually just shut up and listen when you don't know where when you don't have all the knowledge, it's important to listen to people who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to these issues. And being a white middle-aged guy uh, who has not dealt with a lot of these issues in a, in a very personal way, um, it is incumbent on, on me and I think most of us uh, to listen and to really be humble as we do so, you know, and I think that that's something that's, that's 
sorely lacking from our culture today. Um, one thing I think that that I am gratified. I mean, a lot of people say that they want the year 2020 to just go away. It's been miserable and awful and 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 brutal, and that it has been in a lot of ways. But I do think that one of the painfully good parts of this year has been the understanding that the culture needs to listen to some historically disenfranchised voices. And I think that that's one of the things, one of the reasons why we're talking about these particular movies is because, at least for me, these are movies that helped me listen, to help me hear to some issues that I, I think that I sorely needed to listen to and continue to need to listen to as time goes on. So I'm, I'm actually really excited to be able to dive into this. I think that there are some fantastic movies out there that can be a huge catalyst for discussion, for change. Um, movies can, you know, movies are movies, but I still believe that movies are powerful stories that can move the needle in significant ways if you allow them to allow their message to sink in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these, the ones we're going to talk about for both of us, I think absolutely have done that in our own personal lives. And that's why we wanted to talk about that. Um, I think, I think particularly for white individuals like us who grew up in areas that were predominantly white and had, you know, uh, didn't, there was not a large black community around where I grew up. It just, and so a lot of these issues I was not faced with in any meaningful, real firsthand way growing up. You know, I wasn't, we didn't have social media. I didn't have a way to really see these, you know, we didn't have cable news either. You know, that's mediated and moderated by others anyway. So it was like these, until I started to watch some of these films and learn about these things in history and and then as social media grew and I started to hear more and learn more and find new sources and voices like um, the, the movies like this or pieces of pop culture like this were the only thing that started to open my eyes and move towards a journey where I realized how much I needed to listen. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's understanding even just the role it played in my own personal life, like you said, of introducing me to things that I wouldn't have had a clue about otherwise. Right. So, um, and then as we, uh, we also touched on in the, the intro, uh, we're returning to the backlist hall of shame, uh, where we, Paul picked to scratch, uh, one off my list, a little film, a long film, an old film called Lawrence of Arabia in all of its just shy of four hour glory. Um, wow. Yeah. I did make you commit to something pretty hefty. Did I not? You did. And, and more than I could have even realized, uh, I'll, we'll touch on that when we, we'll dive into that. We're going to go for order of events today. We'll go Lawrence of Arabia. Then we'll go our list of, uh, sort of the most personally influential films on race and racial issues. And then of course we'll wrap up the way we always love to wrap up on the show with the most least important thing. Uh, but without further ado, it's time for some Lawrence of Arabia.
Boom. We're in the exact same spot. You probably are too, unless you're out for a jog or a bike ride or a car car ride. I don't know what you're up to while you listen. Maybe you're cleaning the kitchen. If so, <laughs> I feel your pain. But uh, you know what I feel even more stringently, or that's not the right word, what I feel even more acutely than your pain right now is uh, the experience that I had watching Lawrence of Arabia for the Backlist Hall of Shame. The true pleasure, the true pleasure of watching Lawrence of Arabia. Number seven on AFI's list of top 100 films of all time. Four hours of glorious filmmaking. Uh, I made a joke, sort of a semi-joke. It wasn't even like an LOL type joke. Uh, when I I actually asked Paul if he wanted to do a different film <laughs> off of my backlist after he recommended this. And, uh, and he, you know, he was like, oh, I think we should stick with this one for a couple of different reasons. And I said, all right, I will forge ahead. And, uh, I really didn't mean that as a joke, but after the first night trying to start watching this movie and getting about an hour and 45 minutes in, and they were still riding camels in the desert, I was like, I didn't realize how appropriate the word forge ahead, the phrase forge ahead would be. And getting through this movie, I, I've seen a lot of long movies, Paul, you know, uh, and I thought ah, it's fine. It's not that big of a deal. This is a hard four hour movie to try to get through. It's four hours. Of course, why you would think it would be something besides people riding camels in the desert. I do not know. <laughs> it is long of Arabia. You've seen the pictures. Right. I've seen the pictures. I just I thought there'd be a little bit more action and adventure to go along with the camel riding. For the and and of course they've eventually kind of get there in the last hour and a half of the film, but the first two and a half hours, like it's it's a lot of camel riding in the desert. <laughs> with very little action and adventure. There's a lot of excitement. Someone gets shot by a well, someone's compass gets lost. You've got the attack of Akaba. It's that was the that was the most underwhelming part. <laughs> the attack, the it, the first two and a half hours building up to the 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 siege on Akaba, and the they're going to surprise. Right. And we got this tiny little force, and they're going to take this. And I'm like, all right, the camels right. are charging into Akaba. It's about to go down. <laughs> and then they just ride through the city, and then Lawrence walks along the ocean. They've won Akaba. I'm like, where was the action? Where was the fight? Where was the battle? You saw literally like what four guns get discharged, and then it's just a long like wide shot. It looks fine; it's a fine looking long wide shot, but you don't get any action. There's no battle there. Okay, all right, all right. I so would call you- that I would call that the kerfuffle of, of Akaba. <laughs> the, the kerfuffle. The they kerfuffle. completely subverted my expectations, and in not a way I was happy with. All right, we should we should probably give just a quick recap, quick, not four hours long, but a quick recap. <laughs> yeah, a quick recap of Lawrence of Arabia is still two hours long. Of, of what this movie is about, did you did you want me to do the honors, or would you like to do it? Uh, you know what? I'll I'll do my version, and then you tell me if you're satisfied with my All version. Right. All right, you go for it. <laughs> there once was a man who was not seemingly well cut out for military duty, a British archaeologist and educated man who gets sent to go talk to the Arabs. They don't call themselves that. That's what the Brits call them. 
uh, goes to talk to the Arabs and then decides I'm going to help them. I'm going to, I'm going to help them, you know, fight against the Turks as a part of world war one. We're going to take, we're going to ride across the desert and I'm going to discover that I kind of love violence and I hate that. I love violence. I'm going to murder a bunch more people and, uh, you know, world war (laughs) one and, uh, world war (laughs) one. How was that synopsis? And it's all it's all technically based on a person who is real. <laughs> technically based on a person who is real. Yes. But his brother yeah. hated the film and campaigned against it for a long time. Other people sued the film for its misrepresentation. So there you go. There you go. Now it was not a it was not a terrible synopsis <laughs> as far as it went in its negative light. But <laughs> yes, it was about T.E. Lawrence, one of one of the most glorified heroes of World War One, which was really the worst of world wars, because it was just it was just blah. Wars always are terrible. World War One was just the worst. So you were really looking for heroes, and and this is one of the people who was sort of plucked out of obscurity in some ways by the press, um, and and made a hero in part because he was. Um, in this glamorous place at the time, you know, Arabia was considered this exotic locale filled with magic and, and turbans and veils and genies, who knows, you know, it felt very exotic to the people back home in England who were, who were studying this. And, and I think that, uh, because of that, he became sort of a hero, um, even though it was, frankly, all of the all of the folks in who actually live in Arabia who did most of the fighting, um, it was yeah. And, and so you have some some interesting elements where this movie really becomes sort of a study of this guy's character in a lot of ways. This was Peter O'Toole's very first real movie. Uh, Peter O'Toole has been nominated for something like thirty seven Oscars. But this was his first Oscar nomination, and it's probably still his best-known role. And he plays Lawrence of Arabia, who is both, as you say, a smart, educated man, also maybe a bit of a sadist and masochist, um, perhaps gay, perhaps uh, he he is an unusual fit in this place and time and he is a con he is a just a bundle of contradictions right and so it really sort of becomes this study of who lawrence of arabia really is is he a hero is he a demon is he uh, an obnoxious uh self-aggrandizer is he some sort of strange white prophet for the times in that place is he is he just a stupid guy with big delusions of grandeur? And Lawrence of Arabia doesn't even know any of this stuff, really. I mean, he's trying to figure it out as it goes along, and, and he switches his opinion of himself all the time. That was, honestly, I, I have to tell you, Jake, not only did you cross it off your list of, of you know, your Hall of Shame, I crossed it off mine too because I had never seen the whole movie. So some of <laughs> Not the, surprising. Some <laughs> some of the some of the uh, the characterizations in this movie. It was a darker movie than I was expecting, and it was a more yeah. complex movie than I was expecting. Um, yeah. And yes, you are right. It was 
a fairly long movie. It was actually the longest movie to ever win a Best Picture Oscar in history, beating out Gone with the Wind by like two minutes. (laughs) A a, a lengthy film in its own right. (laughs) But two minutes is two minutes. That's why they included all that black screen. They're like, we're going to pass Gone with the Wind, even if we have to tack on 10 minutes of nothing. (laughs) These were the Uh, days you really needed the intermission. I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, for real. Good and, and 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 I have to say, um, I honestly spent the first and I, I know I said this earlier jokingly, but this is real. I spent the first two hours and fifteen, two hours and thirty minutes of this movie being supremely irritated with Paul, and that that is no <laughs> joke. I was annoyed. <laughs> I was like, Francis Ford Coppola is a self-indulgent, just jerk of a director. I had all these talking points about like, we think that old, we, we venerate old cinema because it's old and we say they do it right and they do it the, good, the right way. I'm like, the first two hours and 15 minutes, I hated this movie. <laughs> like, I just was like, give me a break. Nothing is ha- – like, ugh, this is – I did not like it. I was all set to completely dismiss the rest of it. Then intermission happens. And the the movie and the intermission doesn't happen halfway through. It happens at about, you know, two thirds of the way through. Right, right. And intermission happens, and then the movie after that, as I was like, oh, now like this is interesting that the like what you learn about his character and about these other characters and what he starts to discover about himself is the war becomes more complex. His his own, you know, ego and becomes more complex and wrapped up in these things and tragedy happens and uh, he discovers things about himself and about the war and about the people he's working with and alongside and the complexities stack up on one another. It's like, and it becomes, to your point, darker and more nuanced. It's like, that really worked for me. I was I was back on board. And, and so like I finally landed on, boy, if you could take the first two hours and 20 minutes and do that in 30 minutes and you could easily do it, like I would agree that this is one of the greatest films of all time, but I can't recommend that people watch the first two and a half hours of it. You know, this is so funny because the first two and a half hours, my favorite part of the movie, oh my I love the first Two and a half hours of this movie. It's really just, well, and part of it is just my love for old epics, right? You know, yeah. this, the, this movie was made, this and, and Ben-Hur, I think, are like the, the quintessential epic movies that have to be seen on a screen as large as a zip code. You know, because you have these sprawling scenes, these spectacular deserty expanses, right? And it is just beautiful. And you see sort of Lawrence of Arabia in this time sort of becomes your conduit to a very new, very different type of place. And you see as he's learning about himself and as he struggles with his own identity, is he is he truly a British officer? Is he really truly supporting the British cause in the hero? Or is he more, you can already see very early on that he's very sympathetic toward uh toward the the arabs and creating uh, a standalone arabia that's that's separate from all the colonial powers of the day it's separate from britain separate from france all that sort of stuff um and so you have this in some ways the first part of the movie feels 
dramatic and um, inspiring in its scenery and you get to know the characters. I love the interplay between Lawrence and Ali, who is played by Omar Sharif, who does a fantastic job as Ali. That, that, that sort of kinship that they have, I really enjoyed. And it is a much simpler movie. You can sort of feel yourself getting swept away in just the grandeur of it all. And then all of a sudden, when the movie switches from the first half of the movie, intermission, and then you have the second half, the last 40% of the movie or whatnot, the the movie seems to tighten in on itself and it does grow more darker and more complex. And you see this person who you've been sort of encouraged to root for turn darker and bleaker. And he suffers some terrible stuff at the hands of the enemy Turks in one scene. He, he deals with a lot of, he's just dealing with a lot of stuff and all of a sudden becomes a much more human type of movie which I also really appreciated. But for me, it, it left me saying, instead of being sort of swept away by the cinematic grandeur of it all, I found myself really involved with the story and with the complexity and kind of wishing there's, I think there's, there's sometimes a longing within some of us and maybe all of us when it comes to certain movies where we like there to be simplicity, you know? Sure. We, like there to be a simple story where you can where you don't have the messiness of humanity and all of its contradictions getting in the way. This movie starts off as sort of this this clean salute to almost the desert-like simplicity of of the story that we're being told. And then all of a sudden it gets murky and darker and you see the the layers and folds within the story just as as you probably see the layers of the desert too. And I think because of that it it I wasn't able to get carried away. It, it all of a sudden became less of a feeling movie and more of a thinking movie, which I liked, but it was just sort of a different sort of movie. Sure. It is. And and it's not to say that I didn't appreciate the cinematography in the first two thirds of the film. I think that's what you said, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you to um, it's good. But, you know, for me, <laughs> it's one of those things where by the time, you know, he gets dispatched from Cairo and by the time he actually arrives to his destination, I honestly was it. This is a slight exaggeration for comedic effect, but I forgot what the whole point was. <laughs> and I was like, I had to look up the Wikipedia to be like, why did he get sent out here again? Like, like, what, what, what was going on with this? Yeah. And, and then the same thing, like when he, there's some talking there that reminds you of kind of what's going on. And then they get dispatched again to go to another. And again, by the time they get there, it's like, why did they go here again? I don't like, <laughs> we've been in the desert so long. I don't really remember what was going on. Um, it's like it, it, to your point it's not it's not a good film for our modern context where we're used to the story where we're we're more demanding as story listeners right for storytellers to be more efficient in their techniques this one says hey just hold on for a little bit we're just going to ride through the desert for a little while we're going to enjoy the vistas and the grandeur right. it's a tourism thing i think kind of to your in, point in you know, you it is. About, yeah, you think about the audience in the early 60s 
who had, would have had very little access to this. It's like, here, just come to the theater, soak in some air conditioning and watch these grand majestic shots of the, the Egyptian desert and uh, the Arabian desert. And, you know, uh, so, but in our, our modern time where we have so many things demanding our attention for entertainment or work or education from Twitter to Instagram, to Facebook, to Quibi, to Netflix, to Amazon prime, to Hulu without commercials, to ESPN plus and the new Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, 30 for 30, you know, it's like, Ooh, I boy, this, this, this lack of efficient storytelling in favor of sort of cinematic tourism is, is tough when you're sitting on the couch and you're mm-hmm. like, I can just do something else. And I could watch a whole episode on Quibi and probably two episodes. of Quibi. <laughs> See, that just, that just speaks to your millennial mindset. I think. Well, and, and I didn't, but I like, I understand the appeal of it, but it just, I think the medium doesn't work, lend itself as well to this type of storytelling. Well, I think that you're, you're right and wrong all at the same time. As usual. Like, <laughs> because I do think that, Generally speaking, most of our attention spans are, are shortening. We appreciate shorter stories. You know, this is this is sort of the anti the vast of night in a way, where that was a very tight, very taut story that was very right. economical. This is not. I wouldn't say that 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 the storytelling was. I mean, in, in some ways, you're sort of suggesting the storytelling is lazy. No, I'm saying I'm, I'm saying, saying it, it it makes a choice to be long-winded and it makes a choice to it makes a choice not to be efficient but that doesn't mean it's lazy it it is it is luxurious it luxuriates in the time and space that you get to see happen it's indulgent but here's the thing it it is indulgent yeah i think that that's a fair word i think that that's a fair word but i think that when i the stories that kind of impact me and and i'll just say certain stories impact me because they they sweep you away from where you are, where you are sitting, where you are living, and they sweep you into a totally new and different world. I think that that's one of the reasons why we appreciated Lord of the Rings so much. And we sat through 12 hours of Lord of the Rings movies. That is not what you would call a particularly efficient storytelling vehicle. Um, when I read a book, sometimes... Uh, there's a great book about the about India, Shantaram, that goes on for a thousand pages, um, and you. But it allows you to sort of sink into a culture that you never would have seen before, and that sort of feels like to me what Lawrence of Arabia does. Now that said, this is a fictionalized version of this culture, as I'm sure we'll probably get into. But at the same time, it does take you somewhere exotic. It lets you feel kind of what these characters feel in a truly um, intrinsic way that I think that if you economized on the sweeping shots, you would not feel quite as strongly. It's possible. I, I think it kind of comes down to I I like – because I, I tried to think from that perspective of you know just let it kind of wash over you. But it was just ultimately too hard for me to escape. 
That's right. It, it, it was like, I was like, okay, I get it. Like I would even let you linger for 15 seconds or, you know, something like that, but you're lingering for two minutes and that's just too long. Like I got the effect, like I got it at 15 seconds. Like now it feels, it almost felt like a, an unironic version of, uh, you know, a trope that I know goes far beyond um, family guy, but you know, where they just will sit on the same joke, right. For, for way too long, like where Peter Griffin scrapes his knee and he just sits on the ground and you see him go (gasps) like for a minute. And you're like, it's going to end now. It's going to end now. It's going to end now. And then it like becomes funny and then gets unfunny. It becomes funny again. And so when I think about this type of storytelling, that's not trying to do that necessarily intentionally. It's not trying to be humorous at least. Right. I just, I was like, after 30 seconds, I was like, okay, I get it. I got the emotion. I got the grandeur. Like, I don't need another minute and a half. And so that's where I just felt like you could condense some of that and still get the effect personally. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting because I think it's all, in some ways, it's all about context. Because like I say, we sort of forgive the Lord of the Rings movies for doing the very same thing. We forgive the Star Wars movies for doing the very same thing. I, think I don't that- forgive Star Wars for it. <laughs> I think that even Lord of the Rings, I have defenses, but I don't forgive Star Wars. (laughs) And when you look at some of the Marvel movies, I mean, that's one of the things that that appeals to us. And and looking back at James Cameron's Avatar, I know that uh, I I don't have a lot of love for Avatar, but I know that that was one of the appeals where it takes you into this brand new world. And I do think that there's, there's something about Lawrence of Arabia that sort of scratches that same itch. Um, yeah, especially for viewers back in the day, you know, right. where the, the only access that they had to worlds like that were through, you know, if they owned a TV, it was black and white and grainy. You might pick right. up National Geographic and look at it. You would have you would be able to read about it in books. So to see something like this, this brand new world really um, cast so expansive over these huge screens and back in the early 1960s the screens were huge um i think that there's a certain power of it and i i personally believe that that power still holds over for me i appreciated it now four hours is a long movie for anybody to sit through even if you really enjoyed it but i i totally got where it went through four hours and it didn't it didn't annoy me yeah, I think, and that's where I have to recognize that I'm a product of. I have to recognize my own context, and that my experience is a product of my experience, right? To get meta with it, to get community with it, and that, like, I knew, I know, in the back of my head, I could turn this off right now, switch over to Netflix, and watch in 4K even better and more cinematic, you know journeys into these exotic locales via planet earth or uh you know those different types of documentaries where it's it's even better quality and so it's like to me as a product of that in my experience is like well i don't need this from you lawrence of arabia you know (laughs) subconsciously right and or consciously as in this case and so that's where i certainly have to recognize my own experience providing that bias to say, look, if I wanted that from you, Lawrence of Arabia, I would watch planet earth. But to most individuals, you know, that like, and to everyone, when this came out in 19, early 1960s, this was that version, you know, this was 
their opportunity to watch that Planet Earth documentary and to get this story. So I don't fault it for what it was. It just didn't work for me in the modern context. Yeah. And when you, when you look at the, when you look at the scenery, you look at the story, you also get some tremendous acting as well. Um, I, I, again, going back to Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif playing Lawrence and, and Ali, uh, I really liked the relationship on screen and because of that interplay between the two, the tension between the two, I thought was really, uh, really good. My favorite character and this is really this is one of those those moments where you feel a little bit uncomfortable for Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia has not gotten some of the backlash that a lot of old other old films have, but Alec Guinness as mm. Prince Faisal, um, you know, Alec Guinness is as British as British can be, and he's playing playing this this Saudi prince essentially. Um, loved his character. It did make me wonder, um, as I was watching this movie, how bothered we should be by some of those elements, you know, um, clearly you had, you could talk about the white savior complex that, that, that Peter O'Toole's Lawrence sort of embodied in this movie. You have that weird presence of Alec Guinness as good as he was in this role, um, I know that a lot of a lot of Arab countries actually forbid the movie from being seen because they didn't think that it did uh, the the Arab culture a lot of favors in this movie and and even though it's recognized as such a classic bit of cinema, how problematic is it now? Yeah, and I think you know it's one of those it's one of those films sort of in the same vein as a, a Gone with the Wind, where with you know maybe the appropriate asterisk to say hey this is this is not necessarily how all this stuff went down there were a lot of problems with the way we like they it only and it, and it kind of touches on a, a few of them in superficial ways about cert, some of the problems uh that were caused by the type of actions that you know Lawrence and the British military were undergoing in these spaces um and and so i think we have a space in culture to say this is the story as it was told at the time because this was the this was the understanding this was the the predominant narrative that was being pushed by these individuals however we want to stand that in context against what really happened and what was the full blown like i had to do a bunch of research on my own to kind of figure out what was the deal with this campaign and what was its context in the broader culture and in the broader war and how did people feel about it um you know, that's not stuff I learned in history class. And so it, it was easy. Like if I didn't naturally have that kind of researcher vibe that I sort of, uh, you know, got from nature and nurture from my dad as a scientist, like um, I, I could have just taken this and been like, cool, historical, you know, fiction, <laughs> but probably more on the historical side. You know, I think that's kind of what we all tend to do. We know it's historical fiction, yeah, but we're like, but it's probably mostly historical. They probably didn't make up most of the stuff, but like to your point, like the the character that you were praising, Ali, was not an actual individual, but was a composite. Right. So right. it's like he did and not only was he a composite, it was still a character that some of these uh families sued over. Right. Because 
they thought it was, you know, problematic and offensive, even to portray their ancestors as composites of this, like in a composite form. Yeah. And, th- and that's one of the interesting things about film is, is especially when it comes to these historical dramas, these historical epics, not only are they depicting a, p- a particular time in history, but unintentionally they mirror their own history. And I always find that fascinating when you watch some of these movies where they clearly are a product of their time, even when they're trying to depict an entirely different time. And it makes me, it makes me wonder when you are the old guy doing a podcast with some other young whippersnapper in 30 years, how are we going to look back at some of these movies that we watch now? What are going to be the historical inaccuracies that we see in movies now? Because you know, there's going to be some, how are we going to react to those? And and that's a, that's actually a really good bridge because I had that thought about some of the, the pieces of pop culture that I went to put on my list for our next segment where we're going to be, you know, kind of listing out these films on race and race relations and stuff like that, that have been impactful in my own life and questions that that brought up in me. So, um, I, uh, I'll give you a final space if you have one other, any other things you want to hit on Lawrence of Arabia, but nope, I'm good I think to that's go. a good bridge. <laughs> I'm good to go. All right, friends, here we are in Rank Geeks. It's a place where we like to put things in numerical order, but many times don't like putting them in numerical order. Um, <laughs> and that's our right as geeks. <laughs> at, at those times, we just fall back on rank, meaning that we stink. <laughs> so take that for what you will. Uh, as we previewed earlier, um, we, we tried to kind of humbly come together to put together a list of movies and uh, that that uh, really informed us, educated us, hit us in the emotional, intellectual feels um, when it comes to the matters of of race, especially as two white guys. So again, I want to approach. I'm, I'm trying to come at this from a, a sense of humility, of a sense of. Uh, I know I need to learn a lot more on this. Uh, I won't caveat it too much because I could, I could, I could have a whole slew of caveats. But uh, I will say, Paul, as I started to put together these lists, I ended up as much crap as I've given you about the ways you like to like not numerically order your lists. <laughs> I had to come up with at least three different cuts of this list, and I'm still not satisfied and not sure of which one. I want to go with because I, I was torn over. Am I going with what were my favorite? But wait, is it my favorite in on an entertainment basis or my favorite on uh, an education basis? Am I going with, or should I rank them based on where they landed in my own personal life timeline and how, or, or should I rank them in order of like how they helped enlighten me over the years? And I've, I'm sitting here with, three different cuts of this list. No, I, I totally hear you. I, I, I had, I was walking through the same calculus. I almost thought about, because just spoiler alert, most of mine, I think are based on historical events. I almost thought about really ticking you off and just doing it chronology wise, you know, like 1800s, 
<laughs> 1940s, 1960s, 1990s, but I decided not to. I, I, I actually, for once, I'm doing a more traditional list. Whether it's it reflects anything worthwhile or not, we'll just have to see. Yeah, and and I still haven't decided which of these I want to go with because, like I said, I have them where it's like I want to I want to tell I want to go through the list based on my own personal timeline and how they built on one another over time. I want to go based on maybe order for enlightenment. Like how would I recommend these to people that don't, that are still having trouble seeing some of these issues um, and how I would maybe recommend to them like, here, watch these five films in this order. And I haven't even officially decided on what that order should be. Or is it just like, these are the ones I like the most. So well, and then, you know, coming back to my segue from the last segment of boy, I haven't watched this movie in a long time. Is this like it helped me, but is it would would it stand the test of time? It came out almost 20 years ago or more, you know, depending on the film. Like, are there things that maybe would be problematic if I went back and watched it today? I don't know because I haven't gone back and watched it. So I'm kind of even stepping into this with a little bit of trepidation uh, in my own self still to say, you know, I ha- I've spent a lot of time not even knowing I needed to listen. Well, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, we go into this, I mean, let, let's face it, Jake, you and I often probably do not know what we're talking about, Yeah, but it is even more true in this case. And, and because right. of that, these are very personal lists. I, I think that anybody could quibble. Anybody could celebrate a lot of the things on this list. Um, but we're, we're coming at this, I think from really just sort of a personal journey standpoint, what impacted you? What made you think a little bit more deeply? And so um, these lists are going to be flawed as all lists are, but you know, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. All right, Paul. Why don't you start us off? I'm going to start off with a 2016 movie. Uh, it took place um, in, oh, goodness gracious. I think it was the 1950s, and it featured one of the first uh, first interracial marriages, actually, down in the Deep South. It's called mm. Loving. Um it was a really powerful movie in part because it was so quiet. Um, it really talks a little bit about uh, essentially you have Richard Loving marries. A, a, he's, he's just a, a white construction worker. He marries a black woman in the middle of Virginia. Um, it violates a whole bunch of Virginia's laws at the time. And so you have a lot of tension that is created from that. Um, obviously it is a powerful romance in, in a sense. And and that's one of the things that I liked about this movie is it, is it talks a little bit about, um, discrimination in a very small way. You know, I think that, that oftentimes the, the, the best movies that deal with racial issues tend to be large. They tend to be big. They show a lot of potentially reconciliation or anger or whatever it is. But this one was really just about a romance, about a guy named Richard Loving who truly loved his wife, wanted to be married to this woman, and the state and a lot of other forces worked against them. Um, It was, I think, a fantastic movie, in part because 
of the people who who played these roles. Joel Edgerton was played Richard Loving, very understated, and Ruth Nega was incredibly riveting as his wife Mildred. She was I think she should have won the the best actress Oscar for this year because she was just so powerful without ever, I think, raising her voice during the entire movie. It was a really strong movie. So that is number five on my list. Number five on Paul's list. All right. Um, so for me, I think I, I am going to go with sort of a personal timeline, that, that cut of my list. You just decided right now. I did. I was literally I was trying to listen to Paul's thing, and in the back of my mind, I was like, "Which one? Which one? Which one?" So I'm pretty sure I heard most of what Paul said, but uh, you know, there's that. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, there he is with his fuzzy tacos cup. There like he go. just walked out. He just he just walked I out. I was and he would still be talking, but no. Okay. All right. Number number one. On my list, just in that it's the first one I remember watching and starting, you know, this sort of a different consciousness in me was Remember the Titans, um, you know, which came out in literally the turn of the century. It came out in the year 2000. Um, and so I was I was a I was a young lad, you know, I was on the cusp of teenagehood and, um, you know, this this uh, I remember going to watch this movie as a football movie. And coming away, you know, with more than that, with um, lessons, you know, having watched something and, and now having conversation points with my parents on on topics that, you know, I was only really, I was kind of starting to learn about. Like I, at this point I had seen Gone with the Wind because I saw that way too young. Um, I had read Gone with the Wind because I read that way too young. And, you know, so I had talked about slavery. I had talked about segregation and race and stuff like that. But I think this was beyond those, those felt farther removed. And and even though remember the Titans was, you know, based on a story that had happened 30 years earlier, it felt more prescient, even though I didn't recognize the style of clothes. And even though I didn't recognize the time period personally, you know, because it was a contemporary movie, you know, with contemporary actors and, uh, and it was dealing with a sport that I was really starting to love. Um, it felt much more pertinent and relevant to me. And, and because it, it dealt with characters uh, who were lo- like me, and frankly, in that, you know, from a football standpoint, I felt like I could resonate, even though the boy, you know, the high schoolers were older than me. And with the two female daughter characters who were almost exactly my age at the time and resonate with them and the sort of their childlike approach, both as a white young white girl and a young black girl. And um, so to see that playing out in a movie that felt a lot more contextually relevant to me, even though in hindsight, it, it was, it was still a historical, you know, dramatization of something I'd never experienced myself. You know, that is what I look back on and recall as making like kind of causing these issues to feel more relevant and personal and, and as something I needed to be aware of, even just as an 11 year old boy. Mm, Yeah. I, I think remember the Titans is such a great movie in so many respects. You know, I think it, it made my short list for this list. I, I, I did put it in the, the movies that I was really considering, 
But honestly, it's just a fantastic movie. I mean, it might land on a top five sports list for me. It's just a really powerful um, example of how two very different coaches (laughs) can bring together um, a team and a town to win a lot of football games. And I, I think it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great movie. Yeah. And ironically it was, what's that? Denzel. Denzel You can't beat Denzel Washington. And it's interesting because it's one I've thought about in recent years, even beyond the race issues that it dealt with in terms of how brutal the coaching is. Like you look back and you see that style of coaching and you're like, Oh, that's wrong. Like where he's like, nobody gets any water. And it's like they're in this brutal southern heat and they're in these pads and he's like, nobody's going to get any water till he's no longer thirsty. And like, I love that as a kid, right? You're like, yeah, toughen them up. And now as I'm an adult and I'm hearing about these high schoolers dropping dead in the southern heat at football practice. And I've felt the Midwestern humidity and heat in football practice in college. I'm like, oh my, that did not hold up well. Not like, that's bad. not good. <laughs> Like, I don't approve of that coaching method anymore. As an 11-year-old, I was like, yeah, I'm tough. You know, now I'm like, no, please don't do that to our children. I tell you what. It, oh, my goodness. To how anyone's many, children, yeah. How many things seem so right back in the day, so wrong now? That's one of them. That's that one, is of them. one of them. Right, of, you know, and that's in the midst of a movie that deals with a lot of other really pressing and terrible and much worse issues. So, but I, I remember the water thing too. I remember the yeah. players throwing up on the field because they were so tired, and uh, that would not fly today. Not no. fly today. All right, number four. Number four for me is a movie that just came out last year, as a matter of fact, and we did sort of spoil it at the very beginning. Just mercy. Mm. This Story made two of my cuts. I'll just say that. Yeah, Brian Stevenson, the young Harvard lawyer, goes down south to start the Equal Justice Initiative, um, which is essentially a, a service that that defends people, um, primarily black pe- black men who were sent into prison for crimes they didn't commit, and, and specifically the- death row inmates. Yeah, death row inmates. I, I think that it's expanded since then. I don't think it's yes, yes, yes. Just, but this one was, of course, a death row case, and uh, his his main case was was defending a guy named Johnny D, who was accused of murdering a white woman, even though he had dozens upon dozens upon dozens of witnesses that placed him somewhere entirely different. Uh, but because they were black witnesses, they were discounted by by the law at the time. This was the, the- and because the law had its own agenda. The law had its own agenda. And and keep in mind, the thing that struck me, and this actually might have been one of the most catalyzing movies that I had seen recently, um, because I think that in my own brain, you hear about stories like this and you think, okay, 1950s, 1960s, before Mm. the civil rights era, this story took place in 1991. Right. Uh, That was... You know that racism takes place in that time. You know it takes place now. But the fact that it was so obvious and so prevalent and so damaging um, so late in, in, in history, it struck me in a way that I think a lot of other movies did not. I was, I was really genuinely appalled when, when I, I started realizing 
just the weight of the significance of of what was going on down there. Um, so yeah, it, it's anchored by a couple of really strong performances. Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson. Jamie Foxx does a fantastic job as Johnny D. Really watchable movie, um, really galvanizing, I think. And it's available yeah. on a ton of platforms right now for free. Yep, I was gonna I was gonna make sure to say that if you're listening to this in June or maybe even July of 2020, you can probably watch Just Mercy for free via almost every streaming platform. It's one of the ones that they've made free. Um, and and yeah, to your point, you know, even more so than Remember the Titans, it contextualizes uh, this problem in a moment and in a part of America that we can recognize, which makes it all the more uncomfortable. Um, and in fact, like even, you know, not to it, this, these are two factoids unrelated to the main plot line, but that they drop in the end credits that completely contextualize the problem into 2016, into 2019 in ways that like, and I won't spoil it because I think the effect of having watched the whole movie and then seeing these factoids dropped in the credits is really good to the point where I had spent a lot of the movie crying, like just hot tears streaming down my face. And then the two of these facts get dropped in the credits at the end. And all I could sit there and whisper to myself was Christ have mercy. Like Christ have mercy. This, this, Christ have mercy. This is happening right now. You know, this, this factoid existed up until, and it wasn't even forced out. You know, the, the, one of them in particular, the one that lingered until 2019 was discharged without any form of recognizing of its wrong. Anyways, um, highly, highly recommend just mercy. Uh, that was also for me, it was on two of my other cuts of this list. Um, but it's not on my personal, it is on my personal timeline. If my personal timeline was bigger than five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so great pick next on mine. So number two in my personal timeline that I recall um, is actually a bit of a cheat. Um, but I, I don't know if we'll see if Paul objects in that it's not officially a movie. Um, but were the, uh, it was Dave Chappelle's standup album from from the turn of the century killing them softly mm-hmm. um i really got into stand-up comedy as a young like middle schooler adolescent boy and dave Chappelle um was one of those that i got into where uh, i got his albums as a young teenager um shortly after the turn of the century including uh killing them softly which i think was from 2000 or 2001 um of course, you know, the content caveat is lots of language. Uh, you know, I'm surprised you were able to listen to it, honestly. I, I don't think my parents knew. <laughs> I don't think they would have let me. I think it was one of those where I had sort of started to sneak some stuff in from the library, you know, without them realizing it and could and could stick it on my MP3 player without them really knowing. And I don't think either of my parents had any clue who Dave Chappelle was anyways. So <laughs> I don't know if it, would have, it wouldn't have necessarily stood out to them. Um, but you know, Chappelle, and I think this is, you know, this kind of got lost when he, he kind of purposely removed himself from the public eye for a decade or so, uh, up until the last couple of years. But as he's been releasing more stand up comedy on Netflix and elsewhere, we've been reminded of, uh, how incisive 
he can be on some of these issues in the midst of his comedy, even if you don't agree with all of his delivery or all of his conclusions, he's a really sharp guy and will make you laugh as he's. And, and so when, you know, Chappelle in his standup, you know, he, he addresses a lot of these race issues and again, contextualizes them into the current moment where here he is talking about being out with his white friend, Dave, his cracker friend, Dave, and, you know, telling different stories and putting a humorous spin on it to make it a little bit more palatable, but it's very dark, obviously, and a lot of it's humor, but that really started opening my eyes even further to what was happening in the here and now and in our systems, you know, cause he started to kind of draw out how these systems would impact him differently than his friend Dave or, and it wasn't always in juxtaposition with his friend Dave, but, um, <laughs> It, it like when I looked back, like I, I tried, I, I could, I could not take Dave Chappelle and his work off of my list because it really, it, it helped solidify again, something that was started earlier, uh, but bring it even into a more modern context. As I was becoming aware, as I was starting to formulate opinions as a young man, I didn't agree with everything he said, but it started me thinking, it started, it gave me questions to ask. And it gave me a starting point of maybe everything is not as cut and dry as, you know, I thought it was. And that was coming from parents who were pretty progressive in their own right, being feminists and, uh, you know, pro- they're very progressive and liberal in some of those kind of sociocultural ways for, compared to a lot of their own peers. And this was bringing up new things to me. So anyways, Dave Chappelle's stand-up from the early 2000s played a pretty seminal role in just getting me asking new questions. Yeah, no, and I think that those can be incredible catalysts. In some ways, I think that that those type of experiences can move the needle even more than a movie can. You know, you you see a movie and it can be really incredible. But if if there's <laughs> humor, can be an amazing catalyst to cut through a lot of preconceptions. I mean, that's what it's meant to do. It, 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 humor at its best unsettles you. And it doesn't necessarily unsettle you in a galvanizing, you know, change the world type of way. It can be very, very innocuous, but at the same time, it's meant to sort of upend your expectations as to what's going to happen. So because of that, humor can be, I think, one of the best catalysts for change that there is. Yeah. It can leave you unsettled in an unexpected way. Right. Right. Oh, man. So, uh, so listening to you talk, I was... I was debating whether I wanted to change this movie. <laughs> I think I'm. I am gonna. I'm gonna keep it as it is. All right. Um, I almost thought about swapping this out for Get Out because Get Out is is yeah. really a powerful, funny, scathing yep. indictment of a lot of different forms of, of very modern day racism. Um, just it's it's kind of a brilliant movie in a way. You know, it's, it is. A horror movie, and 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 it, of course it is, even though it's not, it's horrific in a way that you would not expect. But I'm going to leave it as I had it and say, Twelve Years of Slave, mm. 2013 movie, um, won three Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It was um, an incredibly stark, painful awful, powerful, beautiful movie to sit through. Um, I think that, that, that one of the things that, that 12 Years of Slave 
uh, brings. It doesn't, unlike Just Mercy, of course, it takes place back in the 1840s, 1850s, um, before the Civil War even. So um, it, it has just a different historical context, but it brings it brings to the screen what the word slavery truly meant. Mm. You know, I, you know, I love old movies. I appreciate gone with the wind as much as anybody, but the depiction of slavery in gone with the wind is kind of historically abysmal, right. you know, in, in a lot of ways, it gives you a false sense of context for what it was. 12 years a slave, gets much closer to, I think, an accurate context. And it's just, it truly is horrific. And it, it, it can leave you feeling incredibly pained, I think, because sometimes I think historically we think, okay, there was slavery for some time in the 1800s, civil war happened all over. Slavery has been a part of our country's heritage ever since it was created. And to think that you have people living in bondage for generations upon generations upon generations, even though that wasn't the story of this particular man, he was actually kidnapped and brought into slavery uh, in a really horrific way. But, but just the power to think that that was the reality for hundreds of years for millions of people, it's staggering. Yeah. No, that's one... Um that I'm sad to say I haven't watched yet because it's kind of been for me in the same category as something like the passion of the Christ. Right. Where I'm like, I've heard about how hard and how importantly hard it is to watch. And that, that has made it easy for me to not watch it on a given night because I'm not, I'm not there tonight. You know, I'm not, I can't, I can't get through it tonight. And, and I've done the same, you know, I did the same thing with the passion of the Christ where I've still never watched that film. So I'm like, I can't, I, I can't do that tonight. You know, it's, I've been going or whatever. And so, um, but yet it does bring us face to face with something that we have long sort of brushed past in modern America and in not even modern America, but even then at the time where we, we would talk about what a great service we were providing to these slaves and bringing them the gospel and saving them from their, you know, saving them from their wanton ways and, um, and so it's, it's one of those where, you know, that, that is sort of the point and where we kind of need it is we've spent a long time washing over the brutality there, uh, that, that we do need to be faced with it to yeah. understand some of the reality of it. And, and even then knowing that it can't barely scratch the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's human nature to try to, to try to excuse things that make you feel uncomfortable, to try to explain away or to, um, yeah, to, 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 to truly whitewash certain situations because to, to face the reality is almost just too painful. Um, and I think the 12 years of slave forces you to face that reality. Another movie that I'm going to just throw out there really quick um, that sort of got lost in the shuffle because of a different set of scandals was 2016's Birth of a Nation. And when you mm. talk about you know, that, the influx of slavery with Christianity, that's a really powerful example of, of how Christianity both excused slavery and galvanized 
the the resistance against slavery. It's a really powerful, again, very bloody, very hard movie to watch, but I think still worthwhile. Yeah. Number three on my list uh, was one of the one of the original Spike Lee joints, and that is "Do the Right Thing." Um, I, I was actually watched this as an assignment in my college film class. Um, and, you know, of course was studying it from sort of a cinematography point of view then, but you can't watch do the right thing and sort of escape the humanity and the tension and the heat and the, uh, undergirding bias that can fester and swelter underneath the surface um, until the right set of circumstances draw it to the top um, through a series of human error and mistakes and bad tempers and frustrations and, you know, compounding to make one, you know, to make for a really bad moment that was built on a long history of, you know, uh, under undergirding tensions and things like that in a community. Um which I, I think ultimately, as dated as the movie feels, <laughs> when you wa- go back and watch Do the Right Thing, you know, you, it's, you're like, oh boy, this feels very, you know, 80s. <laughs> um, it, it feels, it, it, like many of these, it feels very prescient because of the fact that, you know, when you st- first start to watch Do the Right Thing and meet the characters in this community in Bedford, Stuyvesant, and Brooklyn, New York City. Area, Manhattan area, uh, not Manhattan area. That's all the New Yorkers will kill me for that one. Um, but in the Bedford Stuyvesant neighborhood in Brooklyn, um, you know, there's nobody who's an out and out, you know, you're not really seeing any out and out racism. You're seeing a lot of little prejudice. You're seeing a lot of little interactions and things going wrong and building on top of one another, but it's just life. Um, and that was actually something, you know, uh, I heard recently as somebody was talking about this at church, as they're talking about their own experience growing up is how, as a, as a, as a black child and a black, young, black, young man, a young black man in America, like it was just life. Like I didn't realize what it was until I got a little bit older. Right. And that is the sign of the story of do the right thing of a lot of little things that weren't the right thing. Right. Uh, and, and, and people, and some people trying to do the right thing and it getting, you know, it going sideways on them. And, and, and then a lot of, a lot of people not doing the right thing. Um, you know, I'm trying to do this without spoilers. Right. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, and, and so it feels very pertinent in that. I think there's a lot of folks that, uh, think, well, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as it used to be. You don't see the brutal slave trade the way you do in 12 years a slave. You don't see the at least for a lot of the film, you don't see the outright racism that maybe you see in, in some of these other films uh, as far. And, and, and you even hesitate to say that because again, it's just the mindset, but I think that's what Spike Lee does really well and do the right thing is the way he builds on tension and he builds through the heat of this hot summer day in this you know neighborhood in Brooklyn um, to reveal ultimately something that was there all along and pain and brokenness that was there all along that really wasn't hidden. That really wasn't gone. Um, and and that's something I think we're seeing a lot in our current moments and have seen over the years of because we haven't dealt with these things at a base level, uh, they they fester. And, um, and then when a lot of people, a couple of people don't do the right thing, 
they, they, for a long time, a lot of people don't do the right thing for a long time. It can blow up in some incendiary ways. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and that's one of the tricky things about, about race relations today is that, I mean, when you look at, when you look at the history of race relations, when you look at the history of racial tensions, we have made some, some really incredible strides in a lot of ways. You know, we have, we have moved forward. We're not in the 12 years of slave time. We're not in the reconstruction time when that fell apart. Um, There have been improvements, but that masks how many more improvements really have to be made. You know, I think that that's, that's the thing that can be so easy to close your eyes to and so tempting to turn away from if if you grow up in an environment like we did where it's not it's not part of your daily existence where you don't feel that sort of sense of of racism on a day-to-day basis and that's that's you know that's i think that's one of the really important messages for that that movies like do the right thing can can help you see yeah all right number 2 yeah. for me Sorry. Yep. Nope. I was I was doing that. Number two for me, I'm actually going to go with a documentary for this one. Mm. Um, 2018, a little film called, or actually, it's a 2019 documentary, Emmanuel. Um, mm. Focuses on the Charleston Church shooting that happened in 2015 uh, at Emmanuel AME uh, Church in in Charleston. Um, Dylan Roof walked into a church service, sat through a Bible study, opened fire, killed a bunch of people. The documentary showcases one of the most amazing moments that that I think I've I've ever seen in a documentary, and and that was the fact that so many of the people in that church, as they went to listen to to watch Dylan Roof go to his uh go to his his hearing they had an opportunity to speak yeah and they spoke with with oddly enough an amazing amount of grace and love and even forgiveness um for me coming from the faith background where that I do that's a super powerful message to to react to to hate to react to that kind of violence and horror with love and compassion for me that's always sort of the 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 place where real change can happen um the movie shows the beauty in that it also shows how controversial it was you see a lot of conflicting voices where that say i could never forgive that I, there is no way and it it shows i think for me, the tension between the sort of tension that, that, that as a Christian you feel often, and that's the sense, the desire for justice and the need for mercy and grace. And I think that that, that tension makes the movie Emmanuel um, a really powerful, poignant, difficult rumination on on what it means uh, to to forgive in a in a way that I can't even really comprehend. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's one you even struggle to <laughs> with with many of these, but yeah, I, I cannot fathom it um, in any sense of the situation. 
and and how difficult it is a thing overall period in the in the little things and the big things to to walk through and wrestle through and so um it's a it's a powerful and heartbreaking and gut-wrenching thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i haven't even watched it yet (laughs) but just the story as it is you know just having followed it in the news i think yeah you know to your point um and to see some of those stories play out in real time let alone to go back and watch the documentary and um yeah it's it's, uh it's crazy uh number number um two slash four on my list since i'm (laughs) I'm kind of going in like a reverse order, like early to more recent in my life was 2014's Selma. Um, you know, lots to say about Selma. Um, you know, you can talk about just how I, I cried in this one too. Um, as, as Martin Luther King wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail and those words, you know, poured out on the through the the speakers and on the screen and um but uh of course you know it was not a new story you know we've heard these stories for decades now um and yet to see them represented the way they were um has has been has actually been resonating with me again even in this current cultural moment in 2020 because it shows you Uh, It's a reminder, again, just to scratch on the surface of how controversial King was at the time. Um, And I think that can get lost in a lot of our conversations today because he's been much more venerated since. And and, and certainly he's still controversial to some people, Um, but he's much more widely venerated and celebrated today. And, uh, there's, I was, I was talking to my wife about this recently. Like there was, there's almost this sense when I've learned about Martin Luther King growing up of, of people and white people in particular being like, well, of course I would have been walking with him then. Of course I would have been standing up with him then, you know, I was just a kid or, you know, I wasn't around or, you know, whatever that was. But of course, if I was an adult at the time that I would have been on that side of history. And I think Selma kind of it shows a few of the people who actually did and how tough it was um, and how few of them there actually were who were willing to do that, who were willing to stand with King and and how difficult even those who might have been sympathetic to King uh, it was for them to even stand up with him as white Americans and not and I don't I'm not saying this as in difficult in poor them but I'm saying it as a as a reflection to ourselves in our current moment as I'm now watching white Americans who I in my own life who I've maybe heard them specifically say or indirectly say like I would have been on that side of history not you know making these same types of arguments against standing up with black protesters right now that people used against King and black protesters then and realizing, Oh, we didn't realize again, how much of this was still lurking in our hearts and in our, in our systems. And, uh, and it's been challenging to me. Um, and, uh, and, and was one of many reasons that I, I chose to actually go to some of these pro to a protest and to join and to listen 
and to be a part of it, not to, not to take charge, but to listen and to hear and to, um, and to, to observe and to be a part and to support because it's like, this is hard. People don't agree with me. And, and, and as much as I feel like that's hard, I'm not, I, I know nothing. And I, I don't know of hardship, you know, and, and that's humbling to realize. And I think Selma was something that kind of, again, as I've been building on this list and as it was building my own life was like, it, would I, would I go? Even even here and now, would I go if I knew there was a threat of violence? I went feeling safe because it's like, oh, it's peaceful. I'll be fine. Would I go if there was a threat of enjoying my fellow Americans, if there was a threat of police actually committing violence against me? Would I have still gone? And it's it, it was one of those movies that challenged me in that way and challenged my own uh, apathy in that way. Um, so, yeah. I think um, I'm going to go on about Selma for a little bit just because I can, because it is my number one movie. Perfect. It, and I, I really agree with, with what you say. It is convicting and it, and it begs the question of what you would do. And as you were talking, you know, I think I am, I am not, I am definitely not a role model in any way, shape, or form. And I think that I think that when I think about what I would do if I was at, in that time, in, in the age of Martin Luther King, I think I would have been one of those people watching it on TV. I think I would have been, and in some ways, this is this speaks to me now, you know, in a way. I, and I don't say that proudly. I don't say that it, it, it makes me, it grieves me in a way to, to think about some of the ways that, that sometimes I'm a little too passive about these issues. But I think that, that I would have been one of a broad swath of America who watched what unfolded at Selma on TV. That, I think, speaks to the genius of Martin Luther King Jr. I think that... that one of the things that, that this impacts me deeply is not just his, his stance on nonviolent resistance, because, I mean, it's, it's very, it's, it feels very spiritual. It feels very generous. It feels, it feels like the right thing to do. It is the high road for sure. It's also incredibly smart, incredibly mm. smart, because you had... People like me would have been watching what unfolded on Selma, watched what had occurred, and all of a sudden you would have realized what a horrific thing was being done to other human people, you know, other human beings. And I think that that it 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 speaks both to I think sometimes a sense of of apathy but it also speaks to how you can move someone to action. And I yeah. think Martin Luther King Jr. managed to move people to action. And, and Selma is a great example of that. Um, Selma was, I, I would have voted it for best picture um, back when it was made back in, what was it? Two, 2014. 2014. It was, I think it was 
the best movie of the year. I think it was so well-crafted, so well done, so well acted. Um, the story had resonance beyond even the time. Um, it was just brilliantly done. There has been some talk lately that, that perhaps the Oscar voters were not as kindly to Selma as perhaps they could have been because many of the actors and, and people involved with Selma were pretty active in the Black Lives Matter movement of the day, which was not nearly as widely embraced as it is in this very moment in our culture. Um, it's another movie that is widely available now on tons of streaming services for free. Mm-hmm. Recommend everybody watch it. It is a beautiful movie that takes us to a critical time in American history that in many ways does not feel that much different than, than where we are today. Yep. Absolutely. Number one or number five on my list, (laughs) Uh, this manufactured cut of some really powerful films. Like as I went back and ruminated on all this uh, is actually not a film at all. And so again, another place for Paul to potentially get uh, <laughs> rankled by my breaking the rules. Um, but as, as many different ways as I cut the list, uh, this one and Selma made all three and I couldn't shake it off any of the list. And I didn't want to, uh, frankly, I was like, it needs to be there. Uh, and that is, Atlanta, the TV show. Mm. Um, I think before. Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit. In fact, that was one of our uh, our very first podcast way back in the day was talking about Atlanta, um, and uh, and because the, the second season was was you know hot off the presses. Um, I I think that in terms of a combination of art and storytelling. And um, at the and 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 provocative, you know, social commentary. I I'm hard pressed to think of anybody who has done it as well as I think um, Donald Glover and his compatriot, whose name I'm forgetting now, and I'll look up, but in telling you a second, as they do in Atlanta, because it is an insanely quirky and odd show that somehow manages to do some ridiculous things while still feeling very grounded uh, in a, in a time and context that is both alien to most of us as a white audience, but very familiar um, because it's set in, you know, modern day Atlanta. Um, and it's a uh, hero. Mirai is, a, is a frequent, is a good friend of Donald Glover's and they collaborate, they collaborated to make the, the music video for this is America uh, as well as to do Atlanta um, and it, it is about as incisive as a social commentary slash dark comedy show. You set aside the dark comedy, like the way it cuts through many of the issues on, on all sides of the spectrum from like, it deals with the kind of, uh, black, trophy you know sort of black culture trophy hunting that uh, get out deals with it deals with uh, systemic issues of race it deals with um you know as as these some of the, as, with the socioeconomic issues of race and class and you know the haves and the have nots and the way it dances back and forth and, and wrestles with the nuance without 
you know, with villains, but also with gray area, with heroes, but also, you know, who are faulty and who struggle to make the right decisions and not be biased in their own ways. Um, like it's, it's a show that I think as under the radar as it was in many ways in its time, I really hope and think that it's one that'll be looked back on for being prophetic, not in the sense of, you know, the sensationalized sense of prophetic where that we think of, Oh, it's predicting the future, but prophetic in that it speaks truth and cuts to the heart of our current moment to, to kind of lay it bare before us in, in an unfiltered and in a raw way, in an unblinking way. It does it very unapologetically. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not an easy watch, but it's worth the watch. And it's on Hulu. <laughs> on Hulu. I still have not seen it, to be honest with you. So, but I know that you've been raving about it since, uh, since we've been doing this podcast. So, um, and I know that, that critics have loved it. They have loved that show. So, and I think it, it, I have heard from more than you that it's a pretty good one to watch. So. There you have it. We love to hear what uh, films, TV shows, stand-up comedy specials <laughs> have turned new leaves, uh, turned over new stones in your mind over the years. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every little single show of ours. Um, you know, we make mountains out of molehills and vice versa. And we do it well, or we do it terribly, depending on the day. You know, yeah. it's always a mixed bag with the most least important thing. But that's why we keep coming back to it, because it surprises us like a hamster and his. Sometimes in terrible, horrible ways, but it always does surprise us. Yeah. I like, you know, I like to spring this on Paul because he never knows if I'm going to, you know, drag him into the murky waters of controversy or if I'm going to say something completely inane. (laughs) How many times have you almost gotten me fired? Many, many, many times on this segment. (laughs) Nowhere else, just on this segment. So, Paul. The Supreme Court. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> contextually, the day we're recording this, that could be very explosive um, for, for Paul. <laughs> um, no, no, no Supreme Court for me. Uh, kind of going on the theme of this whole episode, the I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and start. I'll just, you know, commandeer. The NBA and the NBA Players Association have been discussing the terms of restarting the interrupted 2019-2020 NBA season. Uh, It's mostly been agreed upon that they're going to be starting in – they're not calling it a bubble anymore, but using the Walt Disney World Wide World of Sports Complex in Florida, right? And they're inviting two-thirds of the NBA teams back to play. But there are some NBA players that are right now uh, voicing concerns about whether or not 
restarting the NBA basketball season will be a help or a hindrance to the current cultural conversation on race and racial racial prejudice and systemic racism in America. Uh, and I and it's divided a lot these athletes and a lot of commentators about whether restarting the NBA season would be a distraction or a platform for continuing the conversation on these issues. And boy, I can see it both ways. I can too. I can too. I mean, I, as a fan, I just selfishly want them to start. Let me just be honest. I, right. I want to watch some basketball. I Same here. My Denver Nuggets were going to be pretty good this year. I want to see them. I want to see them play. I just want to see them play. Um, I would like to think that it could be an effective platform. I would like to think that it does give some... They have... Obviously, professional sports stars have a much louder voice than the rest of us. And so I think it could be a, a great catalyst for change. But I also think, you know, as as important as these issues are, I mean, I think that, that in some ways I also think about just what we've all been dealing with with the coronavirus, you know? And, and I think that we have seen stress levels go, go up. We have seen anxiety levels go up. We have seen um, a lot of, I, I was talking with friends of mine who have been dealing with bouts of anxiety and depression that they have not been dealing with for 15, 20, 25 years. Um, I, it has all taken a toll on us. And I think that that in some ways, for me, the idea of sports is, is sort of uh, something that can allow us to um, it can be a very necessary distraction, I think, you know, and I think that it can it can both focus attention on some really important issues, but I think it can also help sap away some of just the blah that we've been feeling for the last three months over over a, another issue, another another crisis. Um, the idea of gathering together apart and watching a game there's something kind of i don't know there's something kind of beautiful about just the idea of it i think yeah no and and you know the word you use distraction is i think the word that gives me pause in all of this you know i've been revisiting my mic is sitting right now on a stack of books and at the very top is neil postman's uh amusing ourselves to death and and of course he 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 hits a lot in amusing ourselves to death, but you know this idea of the constant entertainment uh, and an aesthetic that our constant entertainment can be, among many other things, um, you know has and I've seen a lot of people wondering this without the constant anesthetic of sports that has been this large communal gathering for our country at one of our one of our probably most prominent forms of distraction and medication culturally without it there is that partially why some of these protests have lingered longer and why people have maybe had more time to sit on these issues to learn about these issues to you know ruminate on these issues obviously it's much more complex than sports but there is you know i understand the sentiment that 
hey, if we bring this back and now it's, hey, who covered the spread and, you know, who's on the, you know, injured list and who's probable, like those are also things that do distract us from diving in on deeper issues. Now, that said, ultimately, I think that it serves, it can, it also serves as, to your point, a communal gathering place, even apart from one another, as something where when we're feeling divided can be uniting. And so perhaps is it a useful form of community gathering, even while we're apart from one another, as a reminder of, hey, we share, we still share things like this in common. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that I think is sometimes minimized that I really value in, in a lot of ways. And maybe it's just because because of my own personal makeup. I think distractions can be really healthy. And let me let me unpack that a little bit more. Um, I have a friend who has uh, a couple of, of college age kids all of their family has been incredibly galvanized and fired up by by what has been happening within the news. Um, but it has been a source of tension within that family um, because they have different views on on and, and my friend was was confiding how difficult it has been because he, believes that there is some systemic racism uh, within a lot of areas of our culture. He has, he was appalled and grieved as so many of us were by, by what we saw and what it meant. Um, And his kids were too. His kids have taken a much more um, aggressive, almost violent stance in a way in terms of they communicated at one point in time that all police departments need to be disbanded. They need to be eliminated. And there is no such thing as a good policeman. That is something that, that my friend disagreed with and it has caused some great consternation within that family, even though they agree on 80, 85 to 90% of the issues one of the things that he mentioned has been um, the only source of relief in some ways with, with those really heavy, really difficult conversations around the dinner table, when they sit down and play a board game, mm. they can play a board game. They can reunite as a family. They can see another side of each other, reacquaint themselves with each other outside of these issues and I think that sometimes, even though we call it a distraction, and it isn't a distraction, sometimes those distractions help us to see the humanity behind the ideology. And I think that there's real value in there because even as we embark on some very, very difficult discussions, um, and as, as we try to grapple with some very serious issues of justice, um, we need to remember that there are people behind behind the issues that we're talking about. That doesn't mean that they're right people. That doesn't mean that we need to embrace or should embrace what they stand for or what they believe or what they speak for. But they are people. And it's only when we value them as people and 
when we can bring them. Um, I think that we are just more easily persuasive when we're able to smile with each other, when we're able to talk with each other than when we're shouting at each other, you know? And yeah. I think sometimes the distractions in our life give us those those touchstones, those point of connection that I think can be incredibly, incredibly valuable to, to, to bridging some really serious gaps. Um, so that would be, that would be kind of my thought. It gets, in some ways it gets back to your number five movie. Remember the Titans, yeah. you know, sports became this galvanizing influence that brought not only a team together, but a community together. They rallied behind this team. Um, so sometimes I think that these really unimportant things like football, like board games, like NBA basketball can be an amazing catalyst to something better. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I think that's ultimately where I land um, in terms of my perspective uh, on it. But I did, I, I'm glad that we're having the conversation on it because um I think it shows, I think it does show some awareness, like, and to know your why so that you don't just restart the season with, you know, the thought of, uh, like how, without thinking through, how are we going to use this to help people and to heal and to be a part of the solution in the midst of the quote unquote distraction. So there you go. Paul, what do you got for us today? Something really lame compared to that. So do you know that there are some scientists are now saying that in our galaxy, there are at least 36 intelligent alien civilizations. Oh, at least 36? At least 36. Well, I'm glad there's a floor that we've (laughs) decided on. They determined this, I think, by sort of the age of the, the, the galaxy, the age of certain stars, the likelihood of planets that can, that can support life. They assume that it has to be of a certain age, 4.5 billion years to develop life. Um, they, only allow, they only expect a good uh, civilization capable of communicating with us. It only needs to last 100 years. So they're, they're sort of taking that as a ground floor. And somehow they extrapolate... 36 alien civilizations. So. Oh. Well, and so, I mean, presumably then with, if you change some of those assumptions, like a young earth creationist might, that, right. that number would explode <laughs> as a young earth creationist could say that there's at least what? 36,000, 36 million <laughs> different yeah. alien species out there based on that timeline. Once you get into young earth creationism, it becomes a whole new ball game, whole new ball game. So, so it's like, do you want to be old earth and, you know, well, whether that's creationism or evolution, if you're old earth, you can, that's not very many alien races out there, but if you're young earth, that's a lot of aliens out there. I mean, come on, which one do you want to be? <laughs> oh man. So this has been a wide-ranging conversation, I must say, even more than usual. More than usual, and also, but also more focused than usual. Until you threw aliens in there, <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, we couldn't just leave people just, you know, worrying. They have to know. Well, I guess thirty-six alien civilizations <laughs> could be a work of a different sort, right? That's a that's a whole new form of racism, potentially. Um. <laughs> well, yep. 
Uh, our brains are tired. I need to go pick up my food from the local food truck. And so that's going to be the end of the show today. Thanks for joining us. You can always catch up with us on Twitter and uh, chat with us. I'm usually well open to conversation. I won't speak for Paul, but I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at EC Paul. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.